Welcome everyone to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist and we have got a great guest today, Tom Tilly. Tom Tilly has just written a book called Speaking in Tongues. Some of you may know Tom. I, I knew Tom from Triple J. Tom, Hack that you used to host was my daily current affair and news program that I travel on the train home from work listening to. You are going to tell us a lot more about your upbringing as a teenage fundamentalist. But one fact that I didn't know about you actually, Tom, that you were the bass player in Client Liaison. And I love Client Liaison. And I didn't know that until I read your book. But your book, Speaking in Tongues, is something that particularly for Troy resonated an incredible amount because it was, for our listeners, you would know Revival Centres is Troy's bread and butter. And Troy, tell us about how that, how it must have resonated with you. Yeah, well, until the book came along, I didn't know who Tom Tilly was, to be honest, and I've never heard of Client Liaison until I read the book. But then again, I was overseas for a good 12 years, Tom, when all that was going down. So so forgive me, I left um, Australia listening to Triple J and came back listening to some semblance of gold or smooth FM kind of thing. So that gives you an idea how old I am. You grew up. I did. I did indeed. And it was quite um, quite depressing to come back and hear Green Day on Gold FM, which is a bit of a worry. <laughs> yeah. When songs from your childhood are on, are on classic hits, you're, um, you know, you're well and truly over the hill, don't you? But, you know, Triple J, I don't know, the music, it's targeted a very young demo. I was listening to Gold in my like early 20s. <laughs> Wow. I, I, I still listen to Triple J, Tom, and maybe I'm just trying to hang on to my youth. <laughs> and in all fairness to you, you were in a religious cult um, at that age, which probably diminished your ability to pick good music. <laughs> well, yes. I, you know, there's about 400 songs in the Revival Centre songbook. I actually recently went through them when I was writing my book because I wanted to get some lyrics in there and um, we couldn't get clearance for the song I wanted, which was I'll Fly Away, which is a gospel classic, which we also used to sing in the revival centers. Um, so I actually had to change it out of the prologue and put in Amazing Grace. You know, we sung that a lot as well, but I put that in there because we could get the rights. It had passed, passed copyright. The irony shouldn't be lost on us that you were singing about grace in one of the most graceless environments that you could imagine. True, true. Um, I mean, look, it's great to be here, guys, on this podcast. This is, um, I feel like I'm stepping into a community that I didn't know about, but I obviously have a right to full membership of, broadly speaking, this ex-evangelical movement. And I, I've known nothing about it because I, I haven't really ever been public about my story of growing up in the revival centers. And I moved away from it and got on with my life outside of all Christian circles, um, especially the revival centers. And so since I've written the book, I'm being flooded with people saying, you are telling my story. This is exactly how I grew up. And it's so good to know I'm not alone or people who are, who know they're not alone because they're already part of this broader um, ex-evangelical kind of community who seem to be out there supporting each other through um, what can be a complex journey after you leave. Yeah, well, welcome home, brother. Welcome home. <laughs> it's a weird feeling. You know, when I was reading your book and you were telling the story about Maruya, because Maruya was actually the camp where I got 
in in air quotes, saved. And the one thing that I could almost hear, like I could smell the must and the dust and the wood of the whole place. But one thing that I could almost hear was, I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. That was a a big (laughs) revival center one because Brian, our symbol was a horse and rider, right? Which was this herald. Um, And so this song was all about horse and rider. So it was sort of the unofficial revival center song, especially for us in Youngies, which was what we called youth group. And you could sing it in rounds as well. So you could sing the first verse over the second verse. And I can hear it being sung in that Maria Hall. When when you just sang it there, I imagine, because that room was a, you know, wooden floor, tin shed basically, and there'd be stomping of feet and clapping of hands, not not in the full-blown charismatic style like you've experienced in some of the churches you guys have been to. But as far as the sort of buttoned up 1950s style of the Rival Centre goes, that was a banger. That's right. Syncopated clap too. Umcha, umcha, umpapa. Yep, that was the one. Love to come to a party with you, fuckers. Wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't that be a great night? We'd be you. syncopated clapping and singing in rounds. Wow. But dude, before you get too judgmental, the AOG wasn't too far off that. I mean, especially the one we're in. Quite a quite a classically Pentecostal scene. Yeah. Look, allow me to to judge just for a moment but you're right it's um i do remember standing on a, a stool song leading people enjoy as a flag flown high so oh I there can, you go yeah <laughs> yeah these these things happen oh, there was God. it's that and and i think as we chat today tom that we are going to definitely bump into lots of similarities we're having a chat before we press record and you were quite surprised by the similarities in our in our journeys, mm. even though we've been in quite different spaces, just about the types of people that we came across and the ones that tried to control our lives. So we're looking forward to, to having a chat about those things. Yeah, those those archetypal characters seem to exist in so many settings, probably outside religion as well as inside religion, which I sort of touch on towards the end of my book. But, you know, one of the unique things about a church that believes it has the you know, the only right path to salvation like the Revival Centers does and, and a path that's different to pretty much everyone else is that you're cut off from the rest of the Christian community. And so we grew up not knowing what the rest of the Pentecostal movement was like. All we knew is what we were told, which was that they had basically missed the point and diluted the salvation message and that they were jumping and singing and falling over and that it, they weren't going to heaven. That's, that's literally about all we knew. Yeah, that's right. And it was um, indulgence. They were just indulgence. That's what they were mm. doing. It's just indulgence. But, yep. you know, Tom, thinking about this podcast, right? So I think this is hopefully going to be a very different kind of interview to the others mm. that you've done, because we're not going to ask you, you know, what was it like to speak in tongues or, you know, tell us about interpretation. We, we don't give a shit about that. We know all about that. So hopefully this is going to be a very, yeah, a very different interview. But I want to ask you, why did you write the book? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I'll tell you how it initially came about. It was, I think it was something that had floated around in my my head for many years, which you know, along the lines of, there's a there's a big story to tell there, and if I ever was to tell it, a book would be the right place because you can give it its proper context and and give it proper depth. And you know, I'm I'm in this business. I'm a a radio maker and, and TV, etc. So I, I'm sort of working across all the mediums and I'm like, that's not a documentary. 
could be a could be a film, but it's definitely that's something that could be a book. And if I ever wrote a book, that would probably be it. And um, as I sort of got a bit of uh, momentum at Hack, um, publisher came to me and said, "Oh, love to get you to write some books. We'll sign you up on a three book deal. Blah blah blah. You can write about all the youth issues that you've covered on Triple J." I was like, "Maybe," but I do have this other story I've been um, thinking about, which is. I grew up in a hardline Pentecostal church. I could write about that. And they said, oh, that's what we want. <laughs> that's the book we want. So that was like where the idea came. But to actually decide to put this out in public was, a, I guess, a bit of a deeper transition for me because as a teenager, I was embarrassed about being in the Revival Center. I loved it. I loved my friends. I loved the community. And I loved that we we were looking to, to some a bigger purpose than just you know, footy, booze and whatever else everyone else did all over, you know, on their weekends. But really to my school friends, I was embarrassed by. And then once I'd left in my 20s, I wanted to move on and and I wanted to fit in then as well. And so I wasn't, it wasn't my lead story when I met someone at a party um, once I'd left. So, and then, and then I got into my career and again, I was, I was a journalist wanting to be impartial. So I wasn't like bringing lots of my backstory into my work. Um, but eventually I got to the point where I was really happy with where my life had landed, really satisfied with what I'd been able to achieve, the friends I'd made, the relationships that I was able to rebuild with my family um, after their um, own journeys with the church. And I just I just thought, you know what, if if my life's come to a great place and this is part of the story, then why be embarrassed about it? It's it's made me stronger. It's part of what's made me who I am. It's helped with my ability to think critically, challenge authority, ask questions. Um, it's also helped probably give me this this thirst for community and connection, which is a big part of who I am as well. So I felt finally that this was a challenging, tough story, but there was so much good in it that it was worth sharing. It, it, it's interesting, Tom. Like we connected and resonated with so much of your story in your book and definitely one bit that I resonated with similar to you like I wasn't brought up in in Pentecostal circles but came into it when I was a, a teenager but similar to you I was so embarrassed by it outside of it mm. I, I loved it while I was in there but and I think part of that for me was deep down I was thinking I think this is a crock of shit. I'm really not quite sure how much I buy into this, but but I'm but I love it. But I'm embarrassed by it because I'm not sure how I can sell this to people. Whereas Troy was opposite. Troy was an evangelist. Troy was you know witness at every opportunity, and we're incredibly different. And we've been mates since back then. But he freaked me out because he would talk to anyone about it, and he was con- incredibly convinced. But also what you spoke about about the positives, and and we really try a highlight that in the podcast is Mm. there's some really good things that came out of it there's also some good things that we carry forward and some of that is definitely about community it's about connection it's the ability to be able to connect and talk with anyone because you had to you know (laughs) it it was an odd bunch wasn't it that's right and a lot of people came to that church or any church because they had they have deep pressing sometimes super urgent needs and so it attracted people from all walks of life and yeah I think you know normally you'd be friends with your parents friends in society and the people you meet at school or in your suburb but yeah in these churches and I think also in those regional settings as well 
also means you have to really cross the different sections of society. So I think that makes you a better person. Like my son, I've just, just had a baby eight months or nine months ago. He's going to grow up very differently. He's not going to have some of that stuff. He's not going to meet as many weirdos. <laughs> he might, but I'll probably have to engineer it or, you know, it's going to be very different. So yeah, I agree with you. So, I, I mean, when you wrote this book, was it for you, was it a little bit of a an owning it, owning what you'd been part of, owning and almost a, a coming out of your story of going, I'm going to own this. This was my past. This actually shaped me and it was a really important part. But who who did you hope would read and connect with your story? Yeah, it was about owning it. It was about saying this is the full picture of who I am because it's weird, you know. I've been on national radio and national TV. A lot of people sort of know me. A lot of people don't, like Troy. I know you now. I know you now. <laughs> you know me very well now. 350 pages worth of um, backstory. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was about giving the full picture. And, you know, I've, I've come to the, like, the firmly held belief that your weaknesses and your challenges are, that's the beauty of a person, you know. That's where, they, that's where you have to kick into gear and grit your teeth. And that's when you learn and grow. So, and humans sit around and tell stories for a reason it's because we learn from each other like that's how we pass on culture and so i think you know why did you write the book it's like you know i think it's just a basic urge to a lot of humans have not every not everyone but i'm an extrovert we have a desire to share because we get something out of that that's how we pass on our culture i think and our learnings Tom, I think it's interesting that you captured the essence of a time of what it was like to be in the revival centers and i was thinking i a subtitle for your book, you know, could be speaking in tongues and then the subtitle could be guilt and sex because that's what it was. That that was the that was the essence of Revival Centre, speaking in tongues, guilt and sex and, and certainly community and all that kind of stuff as well. And I think some of our listeners are going to be listening to this and thinking on some level that they relate because they were in Pentecostal churches and they can see some of it, but it wasn't like other Pentecostal churches, was it? And so tell us about the Revival Centre attitude to to other Pentecostal churches. Yeah, it was basically they they'd got the they misinterpreted the Bible. They'd somehow missed this glaringly obvious meaning that we took from Acts two, and then overlaid over the rest of the New Testament. Even though, when you actually unpack it, there was no verse that said you have to speak in tongues to have the Holy Spirit or be saved. Um, and actually, they just linked a few moments together and decided that that was the blueprint that what happened on that you know, the day of Pentecost was the blueprint for salvation. You know, what happened on other occasions, like in the house of Cornelius was following exactly the same blueprint and we all should. And then assume that when Paul was talking about tongues to the Corinthians, that, you know, he was talking about it in exactly the same way that the revival centers used to talk about it. There were all these recontextualizations and, and joining of dots that should never have been joined to land on this theory. So, we were the ones who had it right and everyone else was wrong. And so from the most traditional Catholic or Anglican churches right through to the Pentecostals that were probably very similar to us, like the CRC, as I understand it, is very similar to the Revival Centre. It just doesn't believe that you have to speak in tongues to be saved. has a similar view on that to other Pentecostals, the baptism of the Spirit almost being like a an extra enriching the element. second stage, your, they're called. Yeah, the second stage, yeah which ultimately goes on to sort of enrich your prayer life. But um, so for that whole spectrum, we just wrote them off. We had nothing to do with them. Speaking to anyone else in the Pentecostal movement would have been just as bad as 
I don't know, having a close association with, association with anyone. And, you know, so everyone from the Pentecostals, just like us, mainstream Christians, right through to just straight up heathens, as we would have called them, they were all in the same basket as far as we, con- we were concerned. They were wrong and they were not going to heaven like we were. As far as I can tell, so I went to, to a few other Pentecostals on my journey after the Revival Center. And there were some similarities, but I didn't get a sense that they were anywhere near as hardline. Like as far as I could tell, they weren't permanently excommunicating people for fornication or throwing people out of the church for going to the wedding of an ex-member, that kind of stuff. So why do you think the, uh, the Revival Centers are so aggressive towards other Pentecostals then? So I see, I see the, the, the mistake the, the Revival Centers have made with, with their doctrine, I see that as a, as a cancer that has all these symptoms. That's, that's what I see as, a, as being at the core of almost all of their problems. So if you have a doctrine that's completely different to every other group, then you have to maintain an identity that's different to all those other groups. So from there, that's where the laws start to build in around it. The, the legalistic framework starts to build about when and when and how you can and can't talk to people who may have left the fold. What constitutes being inside versus outside? So if, if you're the only group that has the path to salvation, it, it requires these delineations that lead to all these ridiculous rules. And I think one sort of leads to the other. You guys would understand very well this kind of fundamentalist creep where you you define one thing and then if there's any doubt around it, well, if there's a doubt, then the answer is no. So the the sort of field of control just grows and grows and grows as you try and find certainty or definition where there really isn't any because many things in life are, are a spectrum rather than a binary. I wonder if that if it didn't happen in reverse, more that they became separate, became exclusive. We are, you know, sort of like a, a, a pride. We are the truth. And then from there, they started to, you know, need to define themselves. Why, why are we better than everybody else? And then from there, that doctrine sort of came out because from my understanding, they didn't start that way. They started the same as every other Pentecostal church and then shifted later on. Yeah, so I've wondered the same question, but I haven't done the research to find the answer. Like I've, I've you know, read Hearts of Fire by Barry Chant and I've spoken to him and spoken to a few other people from um, the Pentecostal movement, but not in a huge amount of depth. It was more just to get a general understanding of where the Revival Center fit and where, where and when it was formed. But I also am still left with the question, when exactly did Lloyd Longfield, the founder, decide on that distinct speaking in tongues doctrine? Was that the reason he initially split off from the CRC and formed the Melbourne and Geelong Revival Centres? Or, I think as you're alluding to, he broke off for a different reason and then somewhere over the next who know, you know, few years or few decades developed a stronger position on speaking in tongues and that was more of a gradual thing and then everything built you know in reverse as you say i mean what's your understanding tom you have come to the right place let me tell you my friend because we have troy here who did his masters on revival centers he's also he's quite published in the space he's got the internet is full of 
Troy's research into revival centers. So, Troy, I thought your name looked familiar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I didn't actually do my master's in the revival centers. I did a, a graduate diploma capstone, and and then I decided I don't want to do this. I want to do something else. So, yeah, I didn't do my master's in the revival center. But yeah, they they broke away from what was then the uh, Commonwealth Revival Crusade in '58 and didn't come out with that doctrine until '59. So that doctrine was mulling around, much like the as I like to call it, the fur, 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 fur fornication doctrine was was mm. knocking around until they made a, they nailed their colours to the mast, so to speak. So, so yeah, that's why I sort of, that was a bit of a loaded question to, you know, do mm. you think maybe it was the opposite? Because it was. Yeah, but I mean, that's just one year, right? So obviously there was potentially that kind of thinking, much like the fornication position potentially, where that was in his head, maybe subconsciously, and then what, it took a year to, for for the sort of, formal policy to form around it or what's your thinking yeah yeah quite possibly but i mean he was lloyd longfield was power grabbing from the start there was split after split you know right up until they actually broke away there was a number of splits in the whole you know in their time in the crc and all that kind of thing as well but you know what i don't want to i don't want to bore our audience with talk about ins and out of the details of the revival center so let me ask you this question tom because you talked about in your book right Obviously, tongues was a big deal, as was sex mm. and guilt. But you talk about your uncertainty around this speaking in tongues experience. I mean, if that's a defining point in the revival center, this is what makes you this. And this, I look, I know you unpack this in the book. Elaborate. You know, this is yeah. this is what makes us what we are. And I don't think it's true. Yeah. So when you said the you know the subline of the book could be could be guilt and sex, I, I almost jumped in and said the subline to my book, I think, is speaking in tongues, a journey of doubt. And ultimately, I think you could say my book's about many things. Like you could also say it's really about family, which which it very much is. But doubt, doubt was a huge theme from my point of view. And I have lived with that. I lived with that doubt. So yeah, re- thought I received at 10 in, you know, the same um, musty scouts caverns that you're, you'd remember so well from Maria come back, go to my first prayer meeting thinking, right, now I speak in tongues. This prayer meeting is going to be great. You know, previously I've been sitting there watching the clock. Oh, a whole hour? My goodness. And yeah, get to that first prayer meeting thinking I'm going to be just connected to, to God the whole time and it's going to be epic. And my brother's tongue, which was so unconvincing, starts annoying me. I'm like, oh, he's faking it. And then I thought, Am I faking it? Maybe I'm faking it. Maybe they're all faking it. No, surely they're not. The adult sounds really convincing. It's me. Mine was a fake. How do I walk it back from here? I can't, I can't publicly denounce my speaking in tongues experience. Um, so I just tried to keep praying and just sort of buried those doubts, but they never, ever went away. But I never, never talked about them. It, it's funny. Look, tongues is such a, a bizarre thing. We've got a whole episode on it. Listen to it, Tom. I think that you'll really connect and relate to it. But I remember like, when I became a Christian and my conversion story was, you know, my brothers had become Christians before me. And I, and I said said to them, you know, basically not in these words, but what defines you and blah, blah, blah. And they spoke about tongues. I said, oh, hit me with it. Speak in tongues. <laughs> so they did. And I remember at the time thinking, wow. This is really bizarre. So I sought after that. I received that. I spoke in tongues for many, many years. 
probably 15 years all up my, my Christian journey, and I never questioned it. I thought, this is legit. Like, this wow. is another direct prayer line to God. And mm. I look back on it now and go, you fuckwit. Like, how can you actually think that that was real? How do you look back on tongues when you think about it now? Well, now that it's all come out in the wash, I realize I was right. It was nonsense. And I'm giving a talk in Perth in a few weeks, and the, the, the theme that they've asked me to talk on is truth and honesty. And I think back, I thought, if I'd been honest about what I was thinking back then, I could have blown the whole thing up 15 years earlier, saved my whole family a lot of trouble, you know. But as you guys have discussed in episode 36 and 37, and probably quite a few more, that's not something that's easy to do is to blow up your world, which is so easy when they're so legalistic and dogmatic. So yeah, looking back, I was like, I was, I was right to doubt that because it wasn't real for me. You know, I still, I still give people the freedom to believe that it's, it's real for them and it looks like it is for some people. Um, and I want to give people that bit of, a bit of grace in a way to have their own faith and their own experience. Um, but for me, it wasn't real. Uh, for my brothers, it wasn't real. My dad still, I think, connects with it, but doesn't see it as literally necessarily. You know, it's almost more of a meditative sort of practice in a way, almost, or connection with that that part of his inner life. Yeah, so I could have called it out a lot earlier, but it was there was too much writing on it because it wasn't just me. If, if I'd sort of voiced my doubts early, I wasn't just sort of putting myself right out on the edge, but I was essentially questioning the whole thing because it was it was central to the organization's identity. One of the things that stood out to me when I was reading your book was when you went to your dad about, oh, is this is this speaking in tongues? You know, whatever your brother was, you were whatever. Your dad said your tongue could evolve over time. And when I read that, right, I was like, you know, and back back in the day, it's like, oh, you grow into your tongue. That's one of the things mm. the Revival Centers used to say to us. And the mm. AOG probably says similar things, but y- your tongue could evolve over time. That's just like looking at it now, it's just so foolish. I mean, basically what they're saying is that they, they coach you to speak in tongues. And then when it's not quite good enough, they go, I just keep practicing. I thought it was supposed to be a miracle. I thought it was supposed to be this holy language. And yet even for them, they're saying, oh, yeah, it'll grow maybe. It's a straight up contradiction, isn't it? That it's a a gift from God, but you you can improve it over time. It's like, no, that doesn't stack up. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's like the miracles, you know, when people get get healed bit by bit, basically, you know, the same amount of time as it takes to get over something naturally. They, that's what they do, you know. Whereas the Bible is people get healed. It's it's a miracle. Yeah, that I was I was a little bit um little bit happy with that line in my book saying where the the miracles range from um, resuscitations to getting the best park at the supermarket, which wasn't that hard in a country a country town of Mudgee, like seven thousand people. Oh, the other day I pulled up at the Woolies and you wouldn't believe it, right out the front Jesus door. Jesus gave me a park, yeah. That's right. 40,000 children starved to death today, but Jesus gave me a car park. I mean, my car park had a picture of a wheelchair on it, but it was free. <laughs> I tell you, it was yours. I mean, what's it, what's it like for you guys? I mean, you're, you're a lot deeper in this to see someone like me and, and Brian, you knew what I did and who I was. What was it like to, to see me come out with this, with this book? 
to be quite honest, I was quite flawed. I was like, I, I didn't think, you know, obviously you hang out with the cool kids at Triple J. Triple J is <laughs> very left, progressive, all those things that, that revival centres weren't. So when this came out, I went, what? Tom Tilly was a teenage fundamentalist? And, but, you know, because, I mean, it's so opposite to how you come across. And I, for me, it was surprising yet not surprising in the way that you certainly shied away from who you were because you were embarrassed by it. And I'm sure that there's millions of other stories out there that are similar of people who now don't believe in the foolishness of what they believed but have at, at that time you you obviously they hide that but now they they come out and here they are you know then and you go god you were too so yeah it floored me to be quite honest but in the same way there's so many others uh, which i think are similar i'm of the opinion that lee sales came from a pentecostal background as well so there's another one of your abc i, I don't know if it's true it's it's yeah it's been said on our um and apparently the ex prime minister too did you did you know about that one, Brian? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, Scomo. No, no. It's all it's all rumor. He's never been to Hillsong. Yeah, apparently doesn't speak in tongues, so not a real Christian. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> that's what I thought. He thought he's not a real Pentecostal. Hey, can I throw another name at you? Yeah. Because you name this person in the book. Yeah. And that is Ian McGregor. Mm. Now you know. Let's get the lawyers out, right? Let's just be careful on all, all all that we need to do. But he was the same guy that kicked me out of the revival really? center. Yeah, 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 man. You and I, Maruya and Ian McGregor, yeah. right? We can bookend each other's lives, I'm telling you. Now, he was a really nice guy in the 80s, I've got to say. Mm. Back in, in the in the early 80s when I first was, you know, involved with him, he was a very nice guy. Treated his own two kids, like abs- youngest kids, like absolute shit. They ended up being booted as well. But he evolved into this, I don't know, this hitman, this revival centre dude that, you know, did the worst, and and yeah. we ended up going to church with his nephew, didn't we? Brian? I was I was best man at his nephew's wedding in the AOG. So, yeah, man, like it's funny. You think that you're not connected to the whole Penty mm. scene. You totally are, brother. Totally. I know. I know. And that's you know when I read Hearts of Fire by Barry Chant and read the history of the Pentecostal movement in Australia, it was mine. It was a mind blowing read for me to under the understand the full context of where our church fit into this bigger story that the movement had been spurred on by what had happened in Los Angeles and started kicked off at the Temperance Hall and and then the CRC had got going or you know and around the World War II a young man Lloyd Longfield had joined and then broke off in 1958 and then I could see that I was part of something bigger because I just I just never saw it that way it wasn't the, as we discussed earlier not the way we were we were taught to think about it so that was kind of nice to be honest it I I just had this deeper sense of understanding of what I'd actually been a part of. Did you ever have a look into, I mean, you've read uh, Barry Chance's book, but did you ever have a look into some of the other ex-member stuff that was all over the internet? And I, I point to Troy, who was involved in, in that a fair bit, but there was a, f- a fair amount of stuff out there. Yeah. So I've chatted to a, a guy called Ian who did the Amaru, I think it's called, that blog. So Amaru. Amu, Amu, yeah. So I saw a lot of the stuff that was getting posted there, which some of my favorite stuff was some of the original documents that he had. And so, yeah, I saw a lot of what, what people were saying there, different threads, different conversation, ex-members, 
Um, around the time when I was leaving in 2002, I also went through a lot of blogs and a lot was being written. What was the main site for for the critical revival voice at the time? Can you remember, Troy? Yeah, there would have been. It would have been Amu. Was was it would the have been dominant that one, one? Was it? Yeah. Even back, even back that far. Oh yeah, back into the 90s. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I checked out some of that stuff at the time, and it was it was like it was like reading a conspiracy theory. I was like, oh my god, it's all wrong, and that actually was a little bit part of my awakening as well. I'd almost forgotten about some of that actually. Um, and then yeah, bit of the bit of the more recent stuff, but I feel like you know, next to you, Troy, who's obviously done a lot of work in this space, I really, as you would have seen, kept this book very personal, and for me, that was. It's just the way I wanted to do it. I wasn't trying to paint the broader picture so much as really, really chart that in, internal psychological um, journey that I, I went on. So I read probably, I don't know, a dozen different books broadly around speaking in tongues and different parts, but it was really just to really just to fill out a bit of my background knowledge so that I understood where my story sat broadly speaking um, and then sort of stuck in my own narrative so i've read a bit of stuff but not a huge amount the other the other big thing for revivalists obviously is sex and that was another big part of your book too so let's talk about sex tell us how you think that whole experience like and and you you really really quite and i don't mean graphic in a negative way i mean you really bear your soul with with your whole sort of sexual struggles and everything but let, let's talk about that how, how did this whole experience of being in the Revival Centre craft you or mould you sexually? Mm. Well, initially I bought into the this notion of um, going into a marriage without, you know, the beauty of going into a marriage without having been physically intimate with someone else. I liked that idea right into my middle teenage years. I was, I was on board with that, that vision. And I, I had crushes on girls at school and, you know, some pen pal relationships with girls in the church, but I wasn't really tested that hard. I wasn't, my urges weren't that strong and I, and I, as I said, I liked the vision. And then the temptations came much closer to when I was ready to leave the church. So, yeah, my first church girlfriend, we didn't even really come cr- close to breaking the rules, partly because she was more, even more careful than I was. Yeah, then I met this girl from Europe um, around the time where it really started started to unfold, and she was a very, very liberal European woman. Um, hadn't had any of this sort of rules or any of the holding back like I'd had. So then, then I got really tested. But the funny thing was for me, I I left the, over the next six to twelve months. I left the church after meeting that person, and we ended up in a three year relationship. But it took me another two years from leaving the church to finally have sex two years and that was because i felt that that because the revival center policy was that was permanent excommunication that felt like a final cutting off from kind of ever going back to my family you know it was all if if you think about it logically it doesn't make sense but these were just feelings of of connection and um it was like fornicating was drawing up the the drawbridge from the the connection to my family it was never going back that's the other thing you know you're in a church that said this this is the line when i was reading your book when i was seeing the 
the stories that you were telling about this, uh, she was Dutch, was that right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I could just sense her just going, oh, for fuck's sake, come on, <laughs> hurry up. Fuck. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, could just, you could just sense that. But at the same time, when you did finally do it, right, mm. was it a monumental event? Could you almost hear the dun-dun-dun of the music and, you know, or was it just natural and it just kind of happened? How did you cross that line? I mean, the funny thing about the way I I do things, and I sort of got an even clearer picture of this through my book. Like, you know, in some ways, the the, the stuff that's happened and um, where my life ended up going looks kind of radical, especially you know, given where I came from. But I'm just I'm just a really careful person, you know. All those little micro steps were super careful. So by the time I actually got to having sex. I'd built up the confidence to know that it wasn't going to somehow rattle me. So in a way, it, it was all the time and the build-up and the internal transition up to that point that made me really comfortable with it when I did it. So in that sense, in terms of like the guilt theme, that that wasn't a huge issue by that point. Um, in terms of the experience, yeah, it was pretty special and that relationship was kind of on the rocks by then, but I felt like given, as you said, she was she was there for that journey, this was the person I wanted to share that moment with. And so it, it still was a big deal, but it didn't rattle me. Uh, that's only because of the, the kind of lead up work, which is a weird way to say it. Yeah. The psychological preparation I did on myself in a way, you know, why it's a bit strange, but yeah. Yeah, look, it was a massive part of your story and your book. And I think, you know, you said before that, you you know, you couldn't be physically intimate with someone else, but you couldn't be physically intimate with yourself. You couldn't masturbate either. I mean, you know, it, I mean, that was frowned upon. Any Anything sexual was frowned upon, wasn't it? Yeah, they weren't as hardcore about that, though. Everyone masturbated. Um, and it didn't feel like you needed to confess that to the pastor. But if you touch someone's private parts or fornicated, then there was enough guilt to to make you feel like you needed to fess up. Yeah, whacking off was more an AOG sin, I think, Brian, than a revival set sin. You know, like you, you can't have it all, mate, you know. <laughs> well, it, it it was. Look, in the AOG, it was definitely frowned upon and um, it, was, it was a constant confession many times a day. But it was, you know, definitely sexually unhealthy. Sorry, Troy. No, I was just going to say, do you remember, we've, we've had this conversation before that it was the, because Jesus said, if you, you know, you think about it or if you've done it in your heart, you know, it's the same as doing it. So I used to think mm. about the cricket while whacking off, right? And it wasn't, it wasn't a homoerotic thing. It wasn't like I was thinking of dudes. I was just thinking about anything because I'm not a big sports person, right? I, I hated sports. So I used to just whack off thinking about the cricket because that was the furthest thing I could possibly get from, you know, I don't know, where were we, the 90s, Claudia Schiffer in a bikini or whatever it was going to be. I, I feel like this is like a Jerry Springer episode. It's I know, you gave me a hard time last time I mentioned that I was thinking about the cricket. I did because, you know, I, I mean, cricket, how can you stay hard thinking about cricket? Anyway, that's just that's just my... Well, you just, you just hurry up and get it over and done with. But see, that leads me to my next question for you, Tom. Do you think you're still sexually messed up by all this shit that happened? No. Um, I... Basically, yeah, it, it sort of like, it just it just delayed it, I think. I think in some ways it was norm, like relatively normal. Like if that, you know, I think the average age of someone having sex is more like 16 or something like that. So if that experience um, from when I was 
23 had happened seven seven years earlier and then I'd gone on from there and you know it took let's say it was it was a, another seven months before I had sex with someone else you know and then it was a few more months after that that it was maybe the third person you know so that's probably pretty normal if it starts a bit earlier say five or ten years earlier um it just meant it looked a bit strange when I was having my wildest times in my early and mid thirties rather than my kind of late twenties. Um, so I ended up very liberal around all that stuff. I sort of hint at some of it in the book, but um, maybe it, it, it maybe made me a bit more, a bit wilder than I would have been otherwise um, because it had been sort of kept away or, you know, made, made to sound, in some way shameful when clearly it shouldn't have been. I think a lot of people who walk away from high control groups tend to act out sexually because we've been we were wound so tight for so long. It's like you let go and it sort of springs at least for a while, you know, it's like a, a slinky sort of opening up for a while and then it finds a natural resting state, which is, you know, what happens because a lot of ex penties and a lot of you know ex other kinds of fundamentalists they're out there living really wild hard lives but not for too long because well i shouldn't say not for too long but not forever because eventually you start to find your morality you start to find what matters to you and you know your sense of right and wrong um but it's hard because i think when you walk away from a group like that you doubt everything that they told you about right and wrong and you you mm. kind of have to find what what is true so there's there's a period for me in between the revival centers and the AOG and even after the AOG where I did a lot of shit that I wasn't really proud of but it's not who I am now mm. yeah I mean the, the thing is for me it wasn't like I got out and went wild it actually it sort of just built very slowly so it was you know left at 21 lost my virginity at 23 Slowly started to, you know, be, you know, hitting up house parties and making friends around Sydney through my 20s and, and it sort of got looser around 30. So that's why I'm a little bit unsure how much of mine is a reaction to the church because I, I don't know, what's, is, is, would your expectation of that typical reaction for it to be happened much sooner after the exit? Yeah, I think so. And I, and I had a lot of my friends that left that that did that. I mean, what about the AOG, Brian? Do you think that's true? A lot of people sort of leave and react quite quickly and they'll stick it in anything. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I definitely <laughs> think um, that that was it. And, and even like if I can compare my circumstances that I got married relatively young in the AOG, yeah. got divorced in my 30s and then... I had a very similar reaction. I went out and went a bit wild for a few years um, before settling back down. But you got those rashes and you had to get the creams and everything. It was pretty, pretty full on. That'll slow you up. <laughs> yeah. So just, just for our listeners, none of that is, well, none of what Troy said is true. There were no rashes. Um, but, yeah, look, I think it does happen. But I don't think it's there's a one-size-fits-all response. I mean, your response yeah. is your response. And you were saying to us, Tom, before we started recording, that you're quite a measured person. And I think in your public persona, that would be something mm. that people definitely do pick up about you. You, you Like as a journalist, you're not someone that, 
you're not Lee Sales from 7.30 report, who, you know, is going in and really trying to hold people to account on things, you know, real hardcore journalism. You, you're very measured in the response and you saw that in some of your shows like Hack Live where you, you did offer voice to many people there. So maybe maybe it's part of your personality that you're a bit more balanced and measured than Troy and I who are extreme. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I mean, there were moments where I grilled politicians, but I was very careful not to show left or right-wing bias. That's what I mean by measured in the journalistic sense. Um, I still went after people, but I, I always tried to keep it very centrist so that all the taxpayers um, felt like they were getting their money's worth. Um, but in terms of sex, yeah, and this is this is like it's a good question. Was it all a reaction to the church or how did it affect me? That's, that's what I've struggled to really – I actually don't know. I don't know how much of it was a reaction to the church, partly because it, it, it took many, many, many years to sort of go to the, the far end of the liberal spectrum. And yeah, I don't know. In, in, a, in the book I write about like the, the, the partying and stuff that it wasn't really a rebellion. Actually, it was more of a search for community and connection because that's what I loved about being at, you know, at all these warehouse parties, house parties, raves, um, concerts, gigs, festivals, touring with the band. I just loved meeting awesome people from different walks of life. And it was like, do you remember those beautiful moments as a kid in the church where you'd go to house meetings and you'd be out in the backyard running around with all the other kids? And I was just swirl of just kids running around, playing, saying whatever came into your head, feeling completely free in that safe space with all your friends. That's what I felt like, you know, being off chops at 2am with hundreds of people that you knew from around town. That's That was the closest thing I could get to it. Um, Revival centres with ease. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. I mean, no you, you've talked... <laughs> no, no, none needed. Um, you're an ABC journalist, Tom, for God's sake. Everyone knows how left you are. You were in Robinese left, right and centre. Um, <laughs> you, you talked about in your book... You know, some of your epiphany moments, I guess, mm. and you, you'd been brought up, you'd been taught all your life, revival centre good, everyone else bad. Mm. Um, but you talk, you know, it's somewhere around the middle of your book, you say that you don't, you suddenly, sorry, came to that realisation that you don't need to be in the revival centres to be a good person. Can you tell us about when that, when that dropped and you mm. thought, and that really hit home? Yeah, well, isn't that funny that that was an epiphany? Like, isn't that just so obvious? And so within that statement, there's so much, there's so many layers and so much coding in, in that statement, or there was if you were brought up in the revival centers. And yeah, that's where I, I met this um, crazy Scottish guy when I was backpacking in Barcelona and we'd had a bunch of nights out and we were sitting there having a coffee. And as you guys read in the book, he, he started telling me about his, his version of Christianity and he he would, you know, Tom, Jesus, Jesus would be out in the streets sitting in the gutter with the prostitutes, not telling people they're not good enough because they've fornicated, you know. He was sort of betraying the more compassionate side of Jesus um, out out there with the, the sick and the weak and, and the people in society that needed love and compassion, not this sort of dogmatic, rule-focused um, overlord, which is sort of how he was portrayed in our church and I was also high on the joy of traveling for the first time. And I, I thought, wow, I'd like to be out there helping people. Like 
I don't want to go back and be part of this negative, boring church. Like I'd rather express my faith in good works by doing charity work. And I sort of had these visions of traveling through Africa and supporting local communities or, you know, deep in the jungle in South America. And I sort of, he sort of helped me, he sort of steered me towards this adventurous, exciting, compassionate version of Jesus Christ. And I thought, well, if you, if you, followed his example and lived that kind of life, how could, how could you not be going to heaven? Like, how could that lead you to hell? And I hadn't pieced together the sort of the doctrinal underpinnings of those concepts um, at that stage. I did later. But it just showed me that there was another way to be righteous and good and it didn't, didn't have to go through this doctrinal needle that the revival centers had created. There's a, there's a term that you may have heard, it's called deconstruction. It's mm. not the sort of Jacques Derrida style deconstruction. It's this idea that you, as a Christian, can deconstruct your beliefs, and, and which you're totally not allowed to do in the Revival Centre. But it's, it's a big deal in this evangelical scene that we kind of dabble in. But it sounds to me like after you left the church, you certainly deconstructed you know, in, in the lead up to leaving the Revival Centres, but then afterwards you hung around churches for a little while. The last time you were at church, I guess, you said, I walked out of the church knowing I wasn't a Christian. Mm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that was a surprise to me. Um, so when I when I had that realization in Barcelona, I don't need to be in the Revival Center to be a good person, but the sort of part B of that was, I still want to be a Christian, a follower of of Christ. I just need to find the right church. I still hadn't worked out that this this all hinged around the the problems with the RCI doctrine position on speaking in tongues that hadn't quite formed. So they started there into conflict with the revival center passes, leave, know that it's not right, but not exactly sure why. And then once I went to this strange evangelical church in Costa Rica when I was on holidays, and then um, I went to another one in the South of London. Then I went to C3, Oxford Falls, Sydney, and kind of, let myself go with the flow, you know, being told that the raising of the hands and the falling over, that this was all just emotional nonsense. Um, so I had this like voice in my head going, this is ridiculous. This is phony. But I was like, shut up, voice in my head, Pastor Ian. Um, you know, and I, part of me thought he might walk in and catch me raising my hands that first time. But I, I went with the flow and I, it felt good. Got to say, it felt really good. But then I ran... I ran into some other questions that were really my own questions, not not the sort of cynicism of the revival centers. Um, the money thing made me very uncomfortable. And there were two other things. One was that it just seemed all about the the cell and not the content of the of the gospel. And the third thing was that it it didn't seem to be at all interested in the community around it. And I was really interested to hear you guys hit on that point in that earlier podcast when you talked about leaving the AOG. They were big things for me. To me, that just had to be part of it, had to be part of a good church. So then I went to a more, a smaller, more lo-fi Pentecostal church, Christian Life Center in Monavale. And that's where I met a guy for the first time who broke down the doctrine for me. And by then I'd worked out what I was actually out there looking for. I was out there looking to understand the Revival Center's salvation message and what was right or wrong with it and where everyone else stood with it. See, at this point, I didn't know what other churches believed you needed to do to be saved. All I knew was they had it wrong. 
I just sat there and the first question, I finally boiled it down. I said, do you have to speak in tongues to be saved? And he's like, no. And so, yeah, I, I unpacked that in the book. And that was the moment that recast the whole New Testament for me. And so quickly, the Revival Center theory fell apart in seconds. He said, show me the verse where it says you have to speak in tongues to be saved. And I thought, well, I've heard this heard this my whole life. It must be right here. Um, um, it's in Acts 2. Um, um, I couldn't find it. Ridiculous. Anyway, I, I ended up with some similar concerns about that church, mostly that it was very inward looking. And also there was... Even though I didn't have to speak in tongues to be saved, there was still so much speaking in tongues and these spiritual experiences, kind of Toronto style, that it made me feel like unless I had it, I didn't have the full package. And again, I felt inadequate. And then finally, this Anglican church, St. Matthew's in Manly, I felt like it. they had it right. They, they balanced all these things. There, there wasn't all the, the sort of experiential stuff that, made me feel like I wasn't being given, you know, God's full range of gifts. They were really community orientated and they had a very simple take on the doctrine. It was just backed up everywhere in scripture, you know, believe in me and you'll be saved. You know, that's, and that I'm like, that's what a Christian is. You know, it's not all this other stuff. That's what a Christian is. They believe in Jesus and they follow him. And this woman got up and she was the, the wife of the, the pastor this youth pastor, and she just really sold it. And she she gave a great rendition of what, what the gospel was along those lines I just mentioned. And she talked about how much she loved Jesus. And I just, there was so much clarity in that moment and in what she was saying that it clarified something for me. It's like, I don't feel the same way. I don't, I don't love, I don't love Jesus in that way. And actually then that's when the dominoes started to fall. It's like, well, do I believe he the story of him being the son of God and then crucified? It's like, not really. That God created the world and created sin that we would one day have to repent from. And I just knew. I'd never really believed it. Um, and that's that's when I realized and it wasn't it wasn't what I expected. I expected I would still be a Christian and um, I was just finding the right church, but it all just once I simplified it, the bottom just fell out of the whole thing. And and I think that that's an all too common story, Tom, that a you lot know? of people, they start deconstructing like you're doing. Mm. You, you pull one piece out and go, okay, the rest can survive. Then you pull the next piece out. This is what I did. Mm. I went, literal resurrection? Yeah. What? A, as if. Mm. Son of God? Nah. Good bloke? Yeah, yeah, he's a good bloke. Um, and yeah. all of a sudden, you're left with nothing. Mm. So, and you've, you've, some people are able to put that back together into some semblance of something that they can really hang on to and go, yeah, yeah, I'm still a Christian, but I'm super progressive. Mm. So it's, it's interesting. We, we, um, I can understand that, that position. I, you know, like sometimes the ideas of, of Jesus, you know, forgiveness, unconditional love, um, everyone being equal in the sight of God. Like these are pretty revolutionary in some ways and they're a nice counterpoint to some of the annoying parts. Like even hardcore progressives could do with some of those lessons, you know, and actually I'm sometimes find myself thinking those ideas are really good. 
And then I, I can see how someone might define themselves as a Christian in that way. I can understand that logic. I reckon we need to put you in touch with a couple of the um, progressive listeners in our in our audience. I reckon they're going, oh, there's still hope for him. There's still hope for him. <laughs> <laughs> I think, the thing that I always find attractive still to this day, I mean, both Brian and I are not Christians anymore, but the thing that I still find attractive was Jesus' standing up to authority and standing up to imperialism. You know, he stood up to the Romans as much as he stood up mm. to the religious people. And that and that's cool, you know. But mm. the Buddha did some amazing things, you know. Muhammad mm. did some amazing things. You know, and even, dare I say it, you know, the Mormons, Joseph Smith is said to have done some amazing things. But is it true or is it just mythologized, mm. you know, archetypes? Yep. Yeah, I think I think it's the latter. And, um, I mean, isn't it a great position just to be able to take the good from it and, and like, see – see the the posit- positives in those values. I, I, I agree. And, I mean, even where, you know, this is the third season of the podcast and I think we're in a very different place than we were when we even started. So it's been a journey for us as we discuss and define who we are and redefine and I think that sort of stuff just continues with the more knowledge you get, the more exposure um, and also giving less of a shit in the end where people sit. I mean, I think we said this in a recent episode, just don't be an arsehole. You know, that's a that's a great thing. I don't care what you believe, just don't be an arsehole. And, and can I also say, I think it's made us more tolerant. Believe it or not, you know, here mm. we are making a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist and throwing tomatoes and rotten fruit at, you know, Pentecostalism in the stocks. And yet we're, I feel we've become much more tolerant. We've got in the audience and even people that have become our friends that are still Christians and they're great people, you know, you've got to cross that chasm, I think. Yeah. So look, an example for me, so I'm there at Triple J, which is sort of seen as fairly left wing, um, hosting the national current affairs program during the same sex marriage plebiscite. And a, a lot of people I knew in the media were arguing that we shouldn't give no campaign as a voice because we were platforming homophobia. And sure, some people, the way they went about their arguments should, weren't respectful. And fair enough, that, that, that means you shouldn't be part of a debate if you can't be respectful. But it went, it went too far in a lot of cases where um, people's beliefs weren't respected. They were, they were branded with this, this logo that meant they were person non grata in a modern society. So I found myself kind of pulling in the other direction a little bit because the the so-called tolerance movement had become very intolerant at certain points. Um, and, you know, they had logic and reason to back that up. But I feel like in some cases it went, it went too far and they, they had become intolerant. Yeah, look, it's interesting, isn't it? And, I mean, if you look now at cancel culture, it, it's rife. And, you know, there's many points of view on cancel culture. For me, it sits uncomfortably because we're not allowing voice. And I know it's got to be measured. And as you say, you can't give a platform to hate. However, I think we have to, you yeah, know, let, let me just stop you there. Like even that gets that gets challenging. Oh, you can't platform hate. Well, who decides what hate is or, or hate speech? Like, and then anyone branded with that suddenly isn't allowed in the media, I also feel really uncomfortable with, and and some of these labels that get used, which are only mean certain things to certain communities, remind me of the 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 church lingo. 
absolutely and it's um it's interesting how we still are shaped by that like if if i look through covid the COVID lens recently, you know, the anti-vax movement was a very strong movement. It was, there was a lot of disinformation, misinformation, all bouncing around. And for me, I probably, I didn't question as much as I would with some of the stuff bouncing around because I thought, I've seen these fucking conspiracies before. I'm not going to actually give any airtime to these conspiracies because that's the shit that drove me in deeper and deeper into this Pentecostalism, into this exclusivity. So when I saw a lot of this stuff, and it was coming out of fundamentalism as well, a lot of the mm. COVID conspiracies, I, I probably questioned it less than I would because I was so turned off by where it was coming from. So it's, it's a really difficult one to work out because here I am many, many years later still influenced in some sort of way, even if it's a different bent, but it's I'm mm. still influenced by that. Yeah, well, there's a lot of similar patterns. The way people string, join the dots on different um, narratives and when that combines with sort of groupthink and echo chambers and different communities, those messages can be kind of powerful and confusing. Yeah, well, a lot of it traces back to the satanic panic, you know, from, from the 70s and 80s. And so that is that has evolved into, what, what's, the, what's the... QAnon. Yeah, into QAnon. I mean, that all that all comes from Satanic Panic, which you know, if, if you can believe that there's Satanic ritual abuse happening in the '70s, then you can, you know, you can believe that it's still happening. And now, you know, Hillary Clinton's running it. Look, I, I want to ask you another question because we're more, almost out of time, and that is that when I read your book and also watched a few interviews with you, I don't hear the word cult when you talk about the revival centers. Is that intentional or do you you just don't think they're a cult? It is intentional. Um, so in some of that um, general research I did, I've, I spoke to a few sociologists about sort of what those labels mean and when they use them. And basically I, I think you can call it a cult and it has many aspects of a cult, but I felt sect was just slightly more specifically accurate to the revival centers because what really defined it was that doctrinal position and so i think that sits more closely with with the definition of a sect which is about you know um it's it's religious position rather than just necessarily the culture of the organization so the culture of the organization was cultish and had many of the hallmarks but if i'm going to use one I call it a sect and the other slight issue I had with the word cult is that it's just it's just used across so many different aspects of society that I feel like the meaning of it has been bled out a little bit um, and, and it isn't isn't super well defined so and look yeah and I guess I feel like that that might be unfair so that's that was my thinking and I totally accept that in many ways it is a cult and and it would be totally fine to call it that. That's just the choice I made. Yeah, well, it's a it's a loaded term. I get that, and you know, I mean, Brian and I have talked about this on on the podcast a lot. That if you know, if everything's a cult, then nothing's a cult, and mm. you know, and and it just really comes down to how you define it. So you know, whether you want to say sect, whether you want to say cult, whether you want to say high control group, mm. whatever you know, doesn't phase us. But we we did come to the realization at the end of last season that we felt 
we're happy to now. Ne- I mean, I've called the Revival Centre a cult since the since mm. the 80s, but I think we we actually were happy to take that label and apply it to the AOG and and to mainstream Pentecostalism. But I guess it's the way we define it. You know, I mean, when we say cult, what do you hear? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of think about Waco and like these really extreme kind of groups where there's um, a lot of violence and all these other probably more ex- even extreme rituals. Um, that's part of what I think. And I and I also think it often infers like a live uh, a live-in kind of scenario as well, which the arrival centers obviously isn't. So, yeah, I mean... You guys are way deeper on this. It's it's not a label I would use on the AOG or or Hillsong, but I do accept that it has many of the characteristics of a cult. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess like you're right. It doesn't. You don't live in. However, they create a world that you have to live in. So oh, yeah. you know, absolutely. And and but also you know physically in some sort of ways. The the only time that you're really out of the bubble is when you go to work, and the rest mm. of the time you've got You've got Bible study or home groups during the week. You've got youth group on a Saturday night. You've got some sort of social activity on a Friday night. Then you've got uh, Sunday services times two and the in-between lunch and very similar to Revival Centre in that way. So, you know, you you certainly are given these parameters to to live within, to breathe within, to act within, um, and it becomes your world. So Mm. I guess that's where we got to as we went, you know what, we were actually boxed into this space this virtual space that became our real space and so it was quite controlling the definitions are interesting are they i was in an interview the other day with mark boris and he said you were programmed you were programmed and it didn't feel right and but don't you think your your whole your whole needing to undo all that doctrine doesn't that feel like a deprogramming yeah. you know like you had yeah. to once you finally this prison of the mind was opened up. You went, oh, well, thanks very much. I'm on my way. Yes, you're right. And look, he was probably right. It was just, again, it was a it was a word with a whole set of baggage and definitions that I hadn't properly overlaid over my experience. So it sat uncomfortably. And it's also not something you really want to admit either. So there's a bit of, maybe that's a little bit of ego um, sort of pushing back there. Um, was there anything else in the book that you thought didn't stack up or raise a lot of questions? That was a great question about the sect and the cult definition. Well, first of all, I, I don't want you to walk away from this going, bastards made me say it was a cult, right? You, you say what you want, right? I'm very open that it's, yeah, um, it's just my choice. I'm not saying I've made it's, it's the right choice. It's kind of a personal decision to define it in that way. We we grew up in this in this environment where you couldn't challenge and question people, and I, I I do it for a living now, respectfully. You know, I've 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 gone hard on the prime minister and politicians, and and I'm I'm stoked that we live in this liberal society where we can, you know, a little boy like me can take it to the prime minister, and means that you learn how to respectfully um, debate things with people and not not get lost taking it personally. All right, so what's your relationship to the Revival Centres now? Have you heard from them? Have Has there been any backlash? Have you got letters from lawyers? No, nothing. Ian McGregor? <laughs> <laughs> well, a few people have said, a few people that still have family in there saying they're losing their minds over it and it's, um, it's sort of there's people going pretty crazy in the fishbowl. That's what someone said to me. 
I don't want to cause them distress and I know I'm getting heaps of messages of people thanking me for telling their story. Like that's that's so beautiful and so nice. So I know that the book is is making it a lot more people feel very comfortable with who they are and the bad experiences that they were forced to go through. A lot more people are getting that benefit as opposed to the cost that's coming at people who are still inside. The census says it's 700 people. Um, that's what it's kind of come down to officially. So I don't know if, if anyone's going to hit me up. I'm really surprised I haven't had a you know a stray Facebook message or something like that. But um, it's just been really positive. And you know, there's there's three kinds of feedback that I'm getting that I really like. One is I read it in one day, like that's a really nice thing to hear. The second is you're telling my story. This is kind of lifting a burden off my shoulders. But the other nice bit of feedback I I really like seeing is I'm a Christian and I like the way you wrote this book. It's you haven't taken the opportunity to slam all Christians and you've learned along the way and nuanced your views. And that means a lot to me. And I guess that's sort of what you were touching on when you're saying you have believers that listen to this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I just, I guess we want to really celebrate your book because it, it was and is a fantastic book. So we do encourage people to to get it, download it, buy the physical copy, whatever you're going to do, get your hands on it because it, it is great. But it's I think it's not just something that our listeners would enjoy. It's it's people gives it's a it's a bit like people have described our podcast. It's a bit like a a prison story. Like not many of us go to prison. So when someone tells a story of what it's like in prison, people go, "Wow, that's amazing! Prison, prison's just incredible. I didn't know those angles." And it's the same with these hardcore fundamentalist religions. That when you give somebody a view into it and what it does to you, how it shapes you you know, how it changes your story and you've got to fight back against that story that it's mm. changed you into. I think it, it's really interesting and it's, and it's really insightful for people. So, but you know, one thing we haven't touched on, unfortunately, as much, and I, and I think that you said this at the start about your family. Mm. You made this really about family and community and you were the first one in your family, in your immediate family, to um, exit the revival centre and mm. then, you know, basically until all of your immediate family members were out of the revival center so it's a it's a real powerful story of how people left but how you stay connected like i mm. i was fascinated by your dad your mum and dad just sound like amazing humans and how they defied the rules of the revival centers to stay connected to you even after you were out. And really, they shouldn't have had anything to do with you if you adhered strictly to the rules. So what sort of impact did that have on them and you? Um, I said I said at my dad's 70th that we'd actually followed his example, the true, not what he'd said via the sort of um, the words and the rules and the, the, the precepts of the Revival Centre, it was who who he and my mother truly were as people, their real values that made us who we are. And those same values came into direct conflict with the dogmatic revival center and that's why it imploded. So um, they just weren't hardliners. They ended up in this church and it, it meant something for them at that time at the ages of 25 and 29 respectively then they ended up bringing their kids in. And this is what I had to think about. How did my parents make this decision to, to, to land their children into this terrible church? 
And I had to go back and think about it from their point of view because they're good people. It's step by step. It's one increment at a time. That's how life works, you know? You don't make these top-down structural decisions. You just live one experience to the next. And that's so I had to go back and just sort of think through their perspective a bit more as well. Yeah, so that that was really, really interesting. And yeah, someone else asked me in another interview recently, yeah, what, what was different about your family? Why did you A, leave and why did you stick together? And yeah, I think it was a lot about just who my parents truly were. And maybe they had enough confidence outside of that small community to know that we could we could still stand up whereas some people just really it's all they have and so for them it's even harder to step away um we had educations and careers and um strong families on both sides like going back going back many generations and going across the you know across the family tree as well so that helped us do, do you sort of claim the crown for the one of leading the family out of revival centres? Because you you were the brave one. You were the one to take the first step. Yeah, it's a funny one. Like I never wanted to kind of gloat about it or rub it in their faces because it was kind of, I don't know, it was a bit, shame, a bit shameful, you know. Like, And I was just so glad that they left. That was the main thing. I, I've never, yeah, I never wanted to make them feel bad about it. Um, no, just just yeah. write a book, Tom. Just put it out to the whole nation. And- <laughs> <laughs> did, did you ever? Did you ever ask them about it? Did you ever say to them, or, or did you? Did you have to? Did they say sorry? Did you ask them to say sorry for raising you in a in a sect? No, no, they didn't say sorry. It was more. I know that they they are on some levels, and but they know that I know that it wasn't that simple, and that I have compassion for that and um but they they did what they did say was sorry you had to go through that alone the leaving that's and sorry we didn't yeah and this is this is where it cuts a bit deeper you know sorry that we didn't understand what that was like um and sorry that we didn't know how much you were hurting during those times and that we weren't there for you during those couple of years of the transition period but it wasn't a sorry we got into the whole thing because they don't want to see their lives in that way. And I totally understand that. Like these were also amazing years, you know, um, as, as you guys have experienced. You can't throw your whole life away as like uh, framed around the mistakes. That's It's not a nice way to live and it's not a nice way to – nice is not even the right word, but it's, it's, not a, it's, not a loving, it's not a loving, truthful way to engage with your life. In this, in this context anyway. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, there's too much good stuff to throw it away. I mean, for, for me, it's, you know, I look back on it and I look back at a fair amount of it fondly, but also the skills that it imparted. Um, I think it's made me a better person. I wish I hadn't have had to go through or gone through what I went through being a part of that. But, God, I can see the the advantages of it. You know, the other defining thing, I think, which would determine how you land on this kind of question we're discussing is, are you happy now? So I think probably with what you're saying there, Brian, that you look back on it fondly, it sounds like you, you like your life now. Whereas if, if, you were ang- if you were really disappointed with your life, if you were really up against it or you weren't sitting in a nice home with lovely curtains and a 
don't know what that artwork is, but um, if you you know if you weren't happy with where your life had landed, I don't think you would see it in the same way. If you were really hurting and struggling now, decades later, but I think it's almost a, a privilege and a luxury, to, you know, to be happy where you are now and to be able to look look through it and pick the good from the bad. I, I think it's choice, though. Like it, it's most certainly a choice. I mean, we've come across many, many angry people. Who, mm. who are still incredibly angry about 20, 30 years ago. They're angry about being born into this space. They're angry about coming into the space and feeling like they're ripped off. Um, you know, much, much like you when you, you wrote the book, you probably wouldn't have thought how many people could connect with it. I mean, we've got a community here from people from many countries. We've got listeners across you know, across the world, um, mm. you know, who are connecting with this and people joining our online communities and telling their story. There's, there is quite an amount of people in there that are still really angry and really hurting and probably haven't got to that point where they've been able to make that choice quite mm. yet about accepting it, processing it and working it out. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think, Brian, it, it can be a stage. You know, like mm. people can go through this and, and be angry for a time, but as we've said before, you can't stay there, you know, because if you stay in that angry space, then, you know, you're just letting the bastards win and, yeah. and you just can't. And so that's why I think, Tom, it's really important that someone with your platform has told this story. It's it's an audience. You've, you've got an audience that goes beyond the people that have been there. It's the friends mm. that have people of people that have been there. It's the family of people that mm. have been there. I was watching television the other night and my wife and I were watching the ABC and the ad for your book came up. Mm. And I just mm. thought, fuck man, so many people are going to hear our story. And that's really what I thought in that moment, because as you've heard so many people tell you, you're telling our story. And so, so many people are listening to this I mean, thousands is, is what is downloading this podcast now. And they're going to just read your book and go, that's my story. And it's just Im really important what you've done. And I don't know if that's what you were thinking when you wrote the book, but that's the impact that, you've, that you're having. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't what I was thinking. I thought, I thought it would give hope to people who've been through something similar. But this, this phrase that you're saying, like you're telling my story or our story, it's, it's, I don't even know what it means almost. Do you know what I mean? It's so powerful, that phrase. It's doing something to people that I didn't, didn't realize it would. And I've been in storytelling forever. There's something about having your experience made public in this way, isn't there? I'm, I'm, I'm still, still unfolding for me, this, this reaction. Yeah, it's hugely powerful. And you know what it means, Tom? It means you can become a leader of a movement and just request 5% and undercut your competitors. 10%? 10% no, no, no. Tithes. No, no. Undercut. <laughs> undercut, Tom. This is the key to business. You come in low, get them hooked in, and then bump it up to maybe 7 I'm, and a half. I still like that stay home Sunday, save 10%. I reckon that's the best line. <laughs> yeah, no, a friend said, well, what's the second book going to be about? I was like, well, that's, that's about starting your own cult, surely. It's the obvious sequel. Well, it could be the other use of tongues, the wild years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, this this thing about it's it's unlocked for. Yeah, I think it's maybe partly that it's it's someone telling the story who has a bit of a platform to share it more widely, but partly that I don't know. It, it maybe it doesn't get unpacked in this kind of detail. The inner journey of it, maybe that's it. I don't know. 
I, look, I, I think um, one thing that I connected with, I know Troy did, and our listeners who will read this book will, is your honesty. Like it, it's something that's a rarity when people write. Like you were incredibly. But is it, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? The honesty of when you said, I've got to save out of sorry, this, I don't mean to belittle this, all right? But I thought, fuck, this is so fucking honest. When you're talking about, you know, ejaculating between the. Hot dogging, yeah. Had to land that phrase in the book. Yeah, yeah, no, well done. And for those uh, listeners, look in the show notes for a link to that video. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> no, but I, I mean, it's it's I've completely lost my track of thought now. No, but no, it's it's the vulnerability. Like you made yourself incredibly vulnerable when you told your story. You you, you may not think that because maybe it's just you. And maybe you're owning who you were. But a lot of people won't write with that level of vulnerability, which mm. allows people to connect to you and to your story. Yeah. I, I don't, it's funny. I don't feel that vulnerable about it. It's weird. Um, maybe I'm a psychopath. Wouldn't be the first Pentecostal psychopath, dude. Wouldn't be the first one. <laughs> <laughs> no, like I was in, you know, in tears so many times in the book. I can't be a psychopath, but um, psychopath would say that. Um, no. I don't know. Those like I thought the narrative about the awkwardness around sexuality. Like I think that was really important. I think that's a that's a, a very important internal journey that the young people that go through this stuff have. And so yeah, I mean, it wasn't a story where there was abuse. And this is the funny thing about my book. That's like it's not extreme in in those really. Fringe ways, but actually, it is really extreme in a psychological way. Yeah, it's totally way. extreme, Tom. That's the thing, you know. Like it, it was, it's your story, so in one sense, it's normal to you. But to people on the outside, this isn't normal, dude. What you went through is not normal, and and it is extreme. Be, being unable to make decisions for yourself really until you could walk away—that's not normal. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I, I guess it's just all just couched in this reality that I'm not. I'm not. F- feeling broken because of it. Do you know what I mean? Like it didn't break me. I won. Um, I walked out with my head held high and I'm proud of the way I handled myself in those, in the worst of those moments. And so I'm not ashamed of it and I'm not broken and angry now. And I, 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 I'm feeling, I'm getting the sense and maybe you guys can, can tell me this from an outsider's perspective, but the, the sort of gentle fairness that I've tried to strike with this book and not, you know slam dunking anyone that feels like it's that's working for people as well that allows them to connect with it without i don't know feeling any hatred or or anything that sort of distances you from the emotional connection i don't know yeah no i I think it is the right thing to do and I, i i think it allows people to to come in like it and, and it's gentle like you've you haven't alienated anybody by coming out angry and swinging and I, I think that's a great thing and it's a gracious thing because you you probably would have ammunition to make it more of an angry rant of a book but you haven't done that and I think that's the beautiful thing about it is it invites people in uh, to experience what you experience through your storytelling and, and that's what we try to do with the podcast too because you know once upon a time this was us we, we were these people, you know, and, and remember, Brian, people got really upset when Brian Houston had all his scandal quite recently. You know, we, we made this comment at the start saying, 
is the woman okay? Let's make this first. Is the woman okay? Are the people that are accusing him, these women that were harassed, are they okay? We made that clear first. And then we said, but also put down your your, your stones mm. from your glass house. You know, this man has a family, et cetera, et cetera. And we weren't for a minute excusing his behavior. Yeah, yeah. But so many people turned on us in that oh, moment no. saying, you know, you're, you're dismissing what he did and all this. And it's like, but we started the whole the whole sentence with, yeah, yeah, yeah. "Are these women okay?" No. You know, and and we tried. Some to people can't hear place. it, can they? They can't hear compassion for the more powerful person. And this is a problem with um, hardcore progressive politics when it goes too far. If someone's higher up on the power hierarchy, you, no compassion for them. And this is where it gets messed up. And this is where actually the going to sound like a Christian, but like that's where. I mean, Jesus set that off in a way. He 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 attacked the powerful, the rich, and the scribes and the Pharisees as well. So in some ways, he was a bit like that. But in other ways, um, he, he he told us to have compassion for everybody. So, and I think, yeah, I, I find that a bit distasteful about sort of the, some of the current political climate. Um, yeah, I think my battery's about to die. That, that's that's my computer. Cool. That, that's a sign. That's a sign from God. Tom. I could. I, yeah. I'm really interested in this stuff, though. Like where where this is going. Like I'm on. The, I feel like I'm on the start of a new journey by putting this out there, and I'm and connecting with with new people is feels like it's. I don't. I don't know where it's going, but it's interesting. Well, we we are we are absolutely here to connect with and can connect you to others and help, you know, as we all go on this journey together because I think that it is a continuation of uh, our journeys from fundamentalism out the other side and there's lots of stuff on the horizon. There's no doubt about that. So we are happy to collaborate, Tom. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll listen to your radio show. We'll listen to your pod- podcast and you listen to ours. Yeah, <laughs> that would that's be good. A deal. It can just be that if you want. That's cool. Yeah, well, look, I think... Flogging this book as hard as possible is a good starting point as well. I think I think so. And look, we we don't just say this because we actually don't have people on the podcast that we we don't want to promote, that we don't want to chat about the stuff and celebrate what they do. So we we certainly don't say it lightly. Get the book, people. It's great. It it really is an awesome read. Um, you will connect. It is your story. For the vast majority of people who were in this same space, it's your story. So you will connect and you'll want to tell others about it. You'll witness about the book. So thanks very much, Tom. Thanks very much for being a part of this. We'll see you later.